Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Sean McFate. Sean is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Previously, he served as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division and then worked for a major private military corporation. In the New Rules of War, he brings his military expertise, both on and off the battlefield, to bear. The world order is shifting, wars aren't being fought in a conventional sense anymore, and nations that don't adapt from World War II-era tactics risk staggering defeat. We spoke with Sean about some of these changes and what the U.S. and other allies can do to overhaul conventional military strategy. So joining us on the phone right now is Sean McFate, the author of The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder. And Sean, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Um, So to start us off, um, before this, your previous book before this book was a novel, Shadow War. Um, What was that shift like from fiction to nonfiction, and what sort of relationship do these two books have with each other? Well, the... um the shift from fiction to nonfiction actually is tougher than I expected. It's, I used to live in Africa, and um, one of the things that they tell me is true. If you're ever being chased by hippopotamus, and hippopotamuses, by the way, are they kill people. They are very dangerous. But the, uh, the, the way to evade a hippo is that these things are amphibious, but you go from land to water and then water to land because they, have, they really have a hard time transitioning between water and land, land and water. And going from fiction to nonfiction, I felt like a hippopotamus. It, it took a while to, but um, you know, once you once you find you know, once I find my groove, I love it. I love, you know, I love fiction because it, it feels it feels dirty to write without footnotes, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get to sort of say what you want, and you get to craft stories. And I, I sometimes think that fiction is a better truth teller than nonfiction for certain things. And those things are things like secret warfare, um, and and in some way, well, in many ways, the the book Shadow War, and um, you know the new rules of war are to use a cliche, two sides of the same coin. Um, I really talk about the same phenomenon that's that's emerging in the world. But I do it through two different perspectives. One is through the perspective of Tom Locke of the novel series, uh, and it takes the reader on the ground to modern battlefields and how they're waged. Uh, and then the new rules of war is sort of a, uh, a serious um, written for strategists. How do, how do you fight and win today's wars? And we should not just throw up our hands and say, well, that's Today we live in the era of forever wars, and we have to live with it. No, we can win, and so the new rules of war explains how we can do so. Mm-hmm. And so, Victor, you mentioned the subtitle um, "Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder." What is? What do you mean by durable disorder? So it, it's a good question. So. When you ask people today, you go to the Pentagon or anywhere you want to go, and you ask four stars, what do you think the biggest threats in the future are? They will tell you China, Russia, terrorists, cyber, all these things. And while those threats are really bad, that's not the worst. The worst is systemic. The worst is an encroaching 
chaos around the world, uh, this sort of entropy that I call durable disorder. And uh, what this means is, it, you know, looking at things like forever wars and insurgencies and terrorism, these are all symptomatic of a world order that is fraying at its core. That world order being the order that you know, nation states have built since Napoleonic times, that is going away. And we're actually returning to something much earlier, wilder, more organic. Something that we saw, for example, in the Middle Ages, where you, you, it wasn't, you had a world order, but it wasn't run by nation states. It was run by a whole bunch of things. And they all competed and clashed. But it wasn't anarchy. It wasn't like, you know, Monty Python's... Uh, you know the the Knights of Knee, et cetera. It, it you know it was it, it didn't the world didn't collapse, but it got messier. And persistent conflict was the number one symptom of durable disorder. And we're going backwards in some ways to that world. Why why do you think that shift is happening right now? You know it's a it, it's a couple it, it's another good question. So. Um, I think what happened, it was triggered by the end of the Cold War, and, well, put it this way, when, when we think about power in the world, the, you know, the world that we, we learn about in, like, sixth grade, it's, you know, nation states, the United Nations, and only they get to have, only they get to wage war, and that's the, ult, the ultimate arbiter and guarantor of power is organized violence, to impose your will on somebody else. Um, and what started to happen is that world um, starts to fray at the end of the Cold War. Uh, some thought the unipolar moment, like Frank Fukuyama, they thought this was the introduction of, of almost utopia, that there'd be no more political dis, you know, disputes anymore, that you know, American capital, democratic capitalism has won, that would be the end of it. Now, what we've seen, of course, is that it's far from it. We've things are frayed. Other states are retreating everywhere. They're being the authorities are being filled in by other other groups that are non-state actors. I'm not talking about terrorism. I'm also talking about multinational corporations and all sorts of other things. And so the world order that we're facing is messier, and it's changing the way we fight wars. And this matters because wars can determine survival. Uh, wars can determine extinction, and we're not prepared for what comes to face us next. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, um, from what you're saying now and from what you go into a little more in the book, um, that war is sort of changing from, as you said, this thing where it's nation-state versus nation-state, and it's more, um, I guess it relies more on capitalism. It's people can hire out armies, mercenaries, you say they're returning. Is that is that as scary an idea as people might think it is? It is, and it's actually worse than people think it is. So when we think about, like, military history, we think about order, world order, um, we think about only nation states can have armies. Only they can legitimately wage war. I mean, if you look at the Hague Convention, the Geneva Convention, you know, inter, you know the laws of armed conflict, they, they all seek to regulate interstate warfare what we call regular war or conventional war. Nobody does unconventional war. Um, but in the history of the world, most of the world is unconventional war, and most of the world is disorder in its, in its history. And private, you know, private military history is most of what military history is. Mercenaries are the second oldest profession. They only went kind of underground in the 1850s. And we should not be too surprised they're coming back after a very brief hiatus 
And once they're back, you can't get rid of them because they can shoot your law enforcement. I mean, think about it. How do you regulate an, a commodity that can kill your law enforcement? And, and who's going to go into Syria and arrest all those mercenaries? Not the UN, not the Marine Corps. And this is an upward trend. We've been we've been tracking. I've been tracking it since you know for 20 years now. Um, and every year, there's more and more mercenary activity. And what happens when you when you have a market for force, like a free market for force, it allows a super rich to become a superpower because they can afford now the means to warfare. You can rent private armies to do whatever you want. So whether you're an oil company going to Africa or an oligarch or a billionaire, I mean, 62 people in the, in the, in the world own half the planet's wealth, right? 62 people, you can put them all into a bus, own as much wealth as the bottom half of the world. You know, they're going to defend their interests with violence now, now they have mercenaries at their disposal. And we're seeing the proliferation of mercenaries everywhere, from Russia to, to here even. In fact, you even have Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, suggesting we should replace all U.S. troops in Afghanistan with mercenaries. And apparently the president is intrigued in this idea. So the prospect of a potential World War III is obviously something that people have been talking about for decades, um, sometimes hypothetically, sometimes as a more serious reality. Um, is that something that would even happen at this point? And if it would, would it work the way that people seem to project and think it might? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, so again, for those from a certain generation, um, uh, World War III means nuclear Armageddon. We think of like the Cuban Missile Crisis gone wrong uh, with you know, the Soviets glassing North America and the U.S. and the glassing USSR. That's not how it's going to happen in the future. I, I mean, it's possible, of course, that there could be a massive nuclear exchange that obliterates life as we know it. You know, it's, it's, it's the worst case scenario. But I think that um, the, the point of the book is that, yes, you know, people are worried about what happens when the U.S. goes to war with China, when the U.S. goes to war with Russia. The truth is that we're already at war with China. We're already at war with China, with, with Russia. Uh, it's just, it's not in the open. It's, it's like a shadow war. The U.S. doesn't really know this, but Russia certainly does, and so does China. This is what they're playing at. And uh, war has gone underground. It's become sneakier. We used to be able to do this. This is just like the Cold War, and we were pretty good Cold Warriors. We've forgotten all that. And when I say we, I mean like Washington, D.C., uh, the Pentagon, uh, the CIA. They, they've forgotten that tradecraft. That's how war, that's what the future war is going to look like. And it's, it's not going to be, you know, open tanks on tank battles. It's going to be special operations forces. It's going to be using, you know, weapons that don't shoot weapons. I mean, uh, don't shoot bullets. So, like, when Putin wants to pressure and break up Europe and, and NATO, what he does, in the old days, the Soviets would have had a massive military exercise in the border of East and West Germany. Now what he does is he bombs civilians in Syria, creates an avalanche of refugees that swamp the EU, and then you get Brexit. Then you get far right-wing parties, you know, winning seats in houses of states in Europe. I mean, the Soviets would have loved to have done that. That's how war is being waged now. It's, it's not being waged by firepower. It's being waged surreptitiously. Mm -hmm. And so that this concept of us being in a shadow war with Russia or China or different countries like that, um, you talk in the book about the concepts of war and peace and how that's sort of a false dichotomy. Could you talk a little more about that? 
Yeah, so we're trained early on that warm peace is like pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. And that, you know, peace, you know, well, war is the failure of peace. And think of, say, conventional war, think of World War II. We were at peace with Japan until they did a sneak attack in Pearl Harbor. We declared war, we, you know, kicked their butt, and then we had a peace treaty on a battleship and we went back to peace, um, you know, the USS Missouri. And today, you know, generals and, and, and ambassadors and diplomats really want a USS Missouri moment with Al-Qaeda, with the Taliban. But that's not how war works anymore. Uh, there's no such thing as war and peace. We make that up in our heads here in the West. We're paradigm prisoners of this. It's codified in international law, but that's not how war works. Um, there's no such thing as war and peace. Both coexist always. Uh, and again, we've done this before with like the Cold War. Was that a was that a war? Was it not a war? People during that time didn't think of it that way. Same with ancient Rome. Um, so what happens is that China, for example, gets in between the space of war and peace and exploits that for victory. For example, in the South China Sea, what they'll do is they'll do all these aggressive measures to take over, say, islands that belong to other people in the South China Sea, and they'll bring it right to the brink of war, where the U.S. gets really redheaded, you know, hot-headed, and then they stop right before we might say, that's okay, you crossed the line. They stop at the line, but then they keep what they've caught. Right, and that's and they're doing this incrementally so that over the years, and they do have a long-term plan, they win the South China Sea one island and one ally at a time. So that's an example of how others are strategically exploiting our false paradigm of war versus peace. Mm-hmm. So how do you, uh, how does the U.S. and other allies who might be following this same conventional definition of war um, fight against this exploitation? Well. <clears throat> It's interesting, you know, conventional war, it's like it's like a pair of goggles you put on that are, like, painted a certain tint. It makes you see the world in a certain way. Um, there's a, there's a, the saying that all, you know, generals like to fight the last war, or generals like to fight the last successful war, and this truism happens to be true. What it means is that generals generally look back at the previous wars and they model off of that. Well, our previous success was World War II, and it's still the model for how we think about warfare today. And it's not just the Pentagon, it's also Hollywood. I mean, Star Wars is an example of conventional warfare in space in many ways, except for their, the Jedis, which are completely unconventional. <laughs> but everything else, you know, like, you know, TIE fighters versus X-Wings, it's all conventional war stuff. It looks like the Battle of Midway in space. That's how we think about war. Well, that's not how China thinks about war or Russia. I mean, Russia has a strategic culture of what called Maskarovska, which means masquerade. Uh, my Russian's really terrible, by the way. But it goes back to the 1400s of using strategic deception to win wars. Same with China, Sun Tzu, the 36 stratagems of war, et cetera, et cetera. It has this, you know, all, you know, Sun Tzu says all, war, all warfare is deception. They don't talk about firepower. They don't talk about who has stealth bombers or aircraft carriers. I mean, China doesn't even have a single aircraft carrier in the South China Sea, um, that I'm aware of at least. And, you know, there's, it doesn't stop them from, from succeeding there. So the uh, people who are, you know, they're, they're Russia and China and others are using our strengths against us the same way, say, an Aikido martial arts person uses the weight of their enemy against them. We're, that's what's happening to us today. And, and the new rules of war is trying to be a wake-up call against that uh, among strategic
strategic intelligentsia in D.C., as well as a broader national conversation within the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say as a, a side note, I'm glad you brought up Star Wars. I did notice there were multiple references to it in the book, which, as a Star Wars fan, I appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you um, have to. So in terms of how the U.S. thinks about its strategy, you talk about grand strategy in the book and how this is sort of a long-term strategy that um, endures for decades or even centuries in a nation-state. Um, so has the polarized political landscape of today and the fact that political power seems to go in this endless back-and-forth between political parties, has that really stalled our way of creating a grand strategy? It has. And, and, and here's the issue. Here's the real problem with it is that grand strategy is the rudder of the ship, right? It's, the, it's what gives us direction. It, it's what, it's what um, articulates and executes all policy across the government in terms of foreign national security policy. And so, for example, we had it during the Cold War facing the adversary, the Soviet Union. We had this idea of containment, right? And containment meant certain things. It had a certain like list of features to it. And every administration, Republican, Democrat, they had a different take on containment, but they stuck to the strategy. And they stuck to the strategy because it was a good strategy. Um, we, you know, today what we need, America is strategically adrift. One reason it's strategically adrift is because it has no grand strategy after the Cold War. We never co coalesced around one. And as our political landscape has become more partisan, it's, it seems that's even further in the distance. And it's gotten to be so bad that there are many in Washington, many experts who throw up their hands and say, grand strategy is impossible now. Well, that's not true. This is the quitter crowd. And I think that we need to take it very seriously because if you don't, if you cannot articulate what victory looks like, then how can you create a strategy to win it? But yet we send troops every day into Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and other places. And without the without grand strategy, nothing is going to come of it, right? So it's it's more than just an abstruse concept by academics. It is actually a tool of warfare. And the fact that we don't have one um, should concern us all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so you've talked in this conversation and in the book a lot about things that need to change, need to be adapted for our changing times in terms of rules and strategies of war. Um, are there any particular concepts or principles, I guess, of war that are timeless that will remain the same no matter how our world order shifts? Absolutely. I mean, most of these, you know, this book has 10 new rules of war. Well, some of them are new, but some of them are ancient. Um, one of the things that is that is timeless is that you know war you know well war you use there's many ways to win a war now in our conventional mindset what we are taught you know success in war looks like it looks like the end of berlin in 1945 it looks like your armies have killed their armies um you've taken over their territory you're flying your flag on their capital it's victory and anything short of that is not victory. Well, that's not true. There's many ways to win. Um, you can win simply by not losing. Mm -hmm. You can win just by surviving. You can win by tricking the enemy to give up. You can win by sapping the enemy's will to fight. There's many ways to win. And the last rule in this book called Victory is Fungible talks about these strategies. And this is how the U.S. gets you know, sort of stymied today is we have enemies there are, there are strategies out there 
that allow the weak to win against the strong. And there are some of the strategies, you don't even need a strong military. In fact, there's some strategies, you don't even need a military at all, and you can win. Our adversaries read this stuff. This is what Mao used to do. This is what Sun Tzu used to do. <clears throat> we don't study this. And then we get, we get, um, we get caught up in it. We, get, we, we fall, whether it's in Vietnam, or it's in Iraq, or it's in Afghanistan. Uh, and this is, a, this is a timeless thing. I mean, Sun Tzu was writing about this in The Art of War in sort of 5th century BC. We don't know when exactly he lived, or even if he lived. But the ideas in the art of war are as valid today as they were in ancient China. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, Sean, one last question for you. Since this podcast, um, our primary audience here are teachers, educators, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? <laughs> well, I have, a, I, have a, I have a lot of favorite teachers. I'm <laughs> a professor myself now, uh, so I'm very much influenced by that. I think... Um, I think my favorite, um, one of my favorite teachers was, well, I have two. One, one is a, is a non, one is a non um, academic. His name is General Stanley McChrystal. Mm -hmm. uh, he was my, when I was a lieutenant, he was my battalion commander or, colonel, or sort of a colonel in the 82nd Armored Division. But, you know, being a good leader means being a good teacher, and it means being a good mentor, and he was, and not just about how to do tactics and stuff like that. Uh, he was a great teacher about uh, not just being a good human being, but also military history. He had a, a, good, a sweeping knowledge of it. Another um, person who I, who I acknowledge in the back of um, this of my book, The New Rules of War, his name is uh, William Olson. He was a professor. Um, he has taught in different war colleges. He's also served in the Hill. He's served in the White House. Uh, he's seen it all from both an academic perspective as well as sort of on the ground perspective. And he taught me to think critically about what is warfare and what is strategy and what is victory. And he, he encouraged me to challenge what he calls the blob. And what the blob is, it's like the Washington consensus, the Washington national security consensus. It's the group think that gives us stupid ideas like, well, there's Iraq has WMD, and you know, if we just invade, then they'll greet us as liberators. That's an example of the blob at work. And he really, before, you know, I think, you know, some have said before, education is wasted on the young. And, you know, these are lessons I got as an undergraduate, um, but it's, it maybe comes slower than most. It took me a while, but he really sort of clarified this for me mid-career to really think critically about things that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your answer and for having a lovely conversation with us. Thank you so much. All right, no problem. Real pleasure. Great. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate right, it. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.